Welcome to the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast with me, Kim McCall. The premise underpinning discussions on this podcast is that life extends beyond the physical dimension, that death is not the end of life, that we are all connected energetically with each other, both in the physical dimension and across dimensions, and that there is a purpose to our life that involves growth, healing and assistance to each other. We will be having conversations to expand your consciousness, help you reconnect with your essential self, and live life as an integrated, multidimensional human being. But given the subject matter, a request. Don't believe in anything, including what is shared here. Experiment, have your own experiences, and always use discernment. The musical introduction to this episode is by Finnish fusion artist Axel Teslev and his song Reincarnation. Before getting into today's program, I would like to extend my deepest appreciation to you for listening to these conversations. I am producing this podcast as a way to share information about life beyond the physical because I believe that this kind of understanding can profoundly enrich our life, help us heal the hurts from our past, and create a more connected, peaceful and loving future. But of course, information alone is not enough. We need to practice, experience, and integrate those experiences. A lot of the people I interview provide some kind of opportunity through courses, coaching, or workshops for you to experience their various offerings. And if anybody you hear on this podcast resonates, I encourage you to follow your guidance and learn some new techniques from them. Apply them in your life. I am also offering some really practical workshops online from time to time with a focus on energy work and the out-of-body experience. If you want to stay in the loop about upcoming opportunities to train with me, I invite you to like my Facebook page, Multidimensional Evolution, which is where I will be notifying any events. Otherwise, if you want to show your support to this podcast, I encourage you to get a copy of my book, Multidimensional Evolution, Personal Explorations of Consciousness. If you're into the topics discussed here, I promise you will enjoy the book too. And now on with today's guest. In this episode, I speak with Trevor Steele, who lives in my hometown in Adelaide. Trevor is the leader of the Adelaide chapter of the Circle of Friends of Bruno Goering. And it is Bruno Goering we mainly talk about, although Trevor's brief backstory is also interesting. Bruno was a German spiritual healer. He was most prominent in his practice after World War II from 1949 through to the 1950s, when he attended what must have been hundreds of thousands of chronically ill, traumatized and wounded people. Trevor says the large grounds where Bruno saw the majority of the people became known as the field of misery, a really powerful image when you imagine 20 or 30,000 suffering people gathered together awaiting healing from all manner of afflictions, including paralysis, blindness and crippling pains. By all accounts, Bruno not only had an abundance of love for all people in need, but actually healed many thousands from conditions considered untreatable. It is a remarkable story that I would have had a lot of trouble believing if I hadn't watched the documentary about him that you can find on YouTube. And unlike many other YouTube documentaries, this one really does seem to have a compelling evidentiary basis. Trevor is an excellent person to narrate this story, himself having started 
and then stopped a Catholic ministry, moving into atheism before experiencing his own spiritual healing. The issue of spiritual healing raises many scientific, ethical and spiritual questions, and I hope this account will inspire you to ponder these as it did for me. All right, Trevor, it's really, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because um, I'd never heard of Bruno Groening before hearing from you. And since then, I've, I've watched uh, the first episode of that documentary around, about his life that's available on YouTube. And I discovered, yeah. um, I discovered that he started his healing journey in a town in Germany, which is literally about 30 kilometers away from where I grew up. And so I was really, I'm really interested in the fact that now I'm meeting you here in Adela, fellow Adelaidean, and you're telling me about this man <laughs> I'd never heard about. So, so where did you grow up? I grew up in a town where? called, called Gütersloh. Gütersloh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've been there. Okay. Yeah. It's just around the corner from Hereford. Um, yeah. I had, a, I had a girlfriend in Hereford for a while, so I spent a bit of time, you know, traveling between the two. Uh -huh. So yeah, it was quite funny to to discover this history that I never even knew was part of German history. Yeah, I knew nothing about Bruno uh, when I was there, uh, and I went through Hereford on the way to um, what's that little place where that huge statue of Hermann, the Hermann Stegmaier, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, What's the, uh, I can't remember what the name of the town right now is. I was just there last October, actually. Um, Teutoburgerwald, yes. Um, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Now, I must say, though, Kim, uh, Bruno first became a public figure in Hereford, but all his life he had been quietly healing people. Yes. Yeah, I gathered that. But I reckon, and I really would like to, you know, hear a lot more for, about his life from you but before we go there i would be really interested to hear a little bit more about you and your you know how how you got into um okay. someone someone like him and how that right. happened in your life journey well it's a very roundabout way but i'm a very keen esperantist you know the international language esperanto yeah and uh, and uh, i've had a lot of uh, overseas uh, experiences through Esperanto. And maybe maybe just and briefly, in case there's anybody listening who doesn't know about Esperanto, um, do you just want to briefly explain the significance of it? Okay. Esperanto is a, a language which was launched in 1887 with the idea that everybody on earth could learn this simple, neutral language so that we could all talk to each other. That's the idea of Esperanto. And it's still going... Um, I wouldn't say it's flourishing, but we are still keeping it up and we hope that someday that it will be adopted and that everybody will learn it. Okay. Now, yeah. because I was an Esperantist, I was asked to help with the translation of Bruno material from German into Esperanto. I'm also a German teacher. Okay. And so uh, I didn't know anything about Bruno until we got these texts about these amazing healings which happened not just back then in the 1940s and 50s but are continuing today all over the world and I thought, golly, you know, th this sounds as though something worth 
looking into. And so um, eventually I joined the group here in Adelaide. And very soon after I joined, I was asked to take over. So that's my situation. Okay. And prior to that, had you been involved in anything like spiritualism or any kind of religious uh, movement or spiritual movement of any sort? Or Okay. Uh, my first choice of a profession... Uh, oh, what's happened? Hold on. All right, we're back again. Oh. I'm here. I've lost you, Kim. I, all I can see is uh, the word Zoom. Can you hear me? I can hear you, yes. Okay. Well, I can hear you. I can see you. Yeah. Okay. I'll keep talking then. Uh, Kim, my first choice of, a, of a, <laughs> a life was as a Catholic priest. I studied for some years in a seminary near Brisbane. Uh, these days, I don't have that belief whatever. However... At one stage, I went with my first wife to an Esperanto colony in the middle of Brazil where we looked after orphan children. And while I was there, we had the most extraordinary experiences, psychic experiences of possession, uh, someone being taken over, but even more importantly, of healing. And I myself was healed of a, well, a very serious back complaint. I still don't know what it was, but for three months I was virtually a cripple. And in the course of about five minutes meditation, I was healed by a group of four spiritualists. And that was my introduction, really, I, I would say, to the world of spirit, because after having left the Catholic Church, I almost drifted into atheism. But all of a sudden I see, I saw that there are spiritual realities, things we cannot explain, but things that happen. Okay, so... Uh, yeah. So in, in Brazil, that are those were members of the spiritualists, like Kardec, Kardec Alan Kardec's kind of um, church? Uh, well, they call themselves spiritualists, but not belonging to any particular group. Yes, I did get to know quite a few in the Alan Kardec um a group, but yeah. the ones that came to us, the four people, uh, they seem to be sort of, um, I don't know, non-identifiable, but uh, they did call themselves spiritualists. Yeah. I think Brazil has got a very rich diversity around around that sort of interaction with, um, with the spiritual well, yeah, side of life. Yeah, um, when I was there, I asked the, uh, the young man who was the, the medium and who had been, I suppose, chiefly responsible for my healing, I said, Paolo, look, I've lived in many countries, Australia, Europe, I've never seen anything like this. Why is this so? And he said to me, Trevor, it's because in Brazil we accept that such things are happening and so they do happen. They probably happen in your countries too, but I suspected some of the people that our mediums are in lunatic asylums. <laughs> um, that's overdoing it a bit, but what he means was, in our, say in Australia, we're very sceptical about things like that, and so they just don't happen so much. But in Brazil, there's a long tradition of spiritualism, and the African influence also has something to, 
to add to that. Yep, and for sure. so every village seems to have its medium, and it's often a woman. And so uh, people go to the medium for healing and, uh, and so forth. And how, do, how was that for you as a Catholic? At that stage, you were still a Catholic priest? Um, no, no. Oh, you'd already well, stopped at did. that point. Okay. Uh, I had been in a seminary for three years, but you had to be there for seven before you became a priest. I left without be, being ordained. Right. But, as I said, after that, I drifted away from the Catholic Church. Actually, when I lived in Germany, I saw that as a, a factor in history, the Catholic Church had been very, very reactionary. And in many cases, I would say even evil. And that, that destroyed my, um, my faith in the Catholic Church. And I had almost drifted into thinking that all religions were, well, that they had nothing going for them. But it was the experiences in Brazil that really woke me up and showed me that, yes, these realities exist. Yeah. So then um, you came back. Sounds like you had a quite a quite a, a sort of itinerant life in different parts of the world. Um, oh yes. yes. You came back I to Australia that. after Brazil. Oh yes, and then went overseas again. <laughs> okay. I've been overseas. I think about four or five times. Yeah. But but you didn't really it, find I'm, a. Sorry. Keep going. I found that. In Australia also these things happen if you know where to look and how to use your own um, psychic abilities, yeah. Yeah. And so you were then discovered you didn't really align yourself with any particular spiritual framework as such until you found um, Bruno Goering's work. Is uh, that right? Yes. As you could put it that way, uh, I, I think I was open now to, well, to spiritual realities, but but even today, even though um, I'm very tied up with the work for Bruno, it's not really a sect or a religion as such. It's open to anybody. Uh, I suppose that an atheist just couldn't really, you know, participate in the work of Bruno, but anybody else can. And in fact, today, the movement, the Bruno Groening Circle of Friends, is spread all over the world. And the healing's taking place in, in Hindu contexts, in Muslim contexts, in Africa, South America, all over the place. I noticed that on the website, it was very many sort of different multicultural or images of what looked like a community of Indian people, community of, of, of maybe Chinese or Japanese people um in the different photos so before, sorry yeah so so i guess you know i'm i'm curious then uh you know before we go into how uh, a person from germany in the 1940s and 50s kind of kept this influence going across the world maybe yeah start telling us a bit about um bruno's bruno's life Okay. Uh, Bruno was born in 1906 in Danzig, which was then a German city over in uh, the east. 
It's today a Polish city called Gdańsk because the Germans were chased out after the Second World War. Now, he grew up in a pretty rough sort of family, very proletarian, and uh, he was the fourth of seven kids. And there was a lot of um, pretty rough behavior within the family. The father used to beat the kids, the kids liked fighting each other, and Bruno would never hit back. And when, when a kid doesn't hit back, uh, he's inclined to be picked on by others. And so as a little kid, about I don't know, three years old, he used to run away from home and go into the forest nearby, and there he would relate to the animals. In fact, his very first healing experience was of a lame dog that came to him. Other animals used to come to him too. Somehow they sense that this is a very tranquil, very potential, very strong soul. And there was an old dog there which was lame, and Bruno just stroked it a few times, and it gradually got better. But one day, uh, he also <laughs> ran away from school at times. There was plenty of biff at school as well. So one day when he was, I think, about four years old, he ran away, he was in a forest, and he says, God, please take me away from this awful place. I don't want to be here. And the answer came back, Bruno, you chose to be here. Your, your uh, mission in life is to help other people. That's why you're there. So be patient and just help other people. Uh, that story has been, um, uh, you know, it's a favorite one with uh, followers of Bruno. It's also been confirmed by other people. Okay. So, so I, I saw uh, I saw in the documentary that um, uh, they interviewed um, I think a cousin of his uh, was one of the the sort of living uh, relatives that they got to speak to, who who recalls um, some of the things you just said right about how how what a, what a strange boy he seemed to be to the family at the time and that's right his, his running away yeah. and so on yeah yeah. <laughs> Uh, but he was also so gentle, he, he wouldn't defend himself. Actually, one of his brothers was later to, and his father, they'd been pretty tough on him, but in later life, they saw what Bruno was, and so they, they made, what's the word in English? Affidavits. Oh, yeah. To, this is what he was like. Okay, the first uh, human being that he healed now, I put the word healed in inverted commas, uh, and I'll explain why in a moment. It was his grandmother. His grandmother was dying. She was in the bed. The whole family gathered around her to say goodbye. And Bruno just said, Grandma, you're not sick. Get up. And amazingly, she did. Now, a little bit later, uh, it was the time of the First World War. He was what then? eight years old, eight, nine years old. Uh, there was a uh, military hospital close to where they were living in Danzig. And the mother used to go to this hospital to do volunteer work. And Bruno would go with her. And everyone noticed that where this kid went, it was a great consolation of those young men who were in agony in their beds and, you know, with all sorts of horrible wounds. And so the hospital staff 
asked the mother to bring him every time. So, you know, he was quite an extraordinary uh, young person. And by the way, he was also quite psychic. Six months before the First World War started, he told his father that there was going to be a world war, and he told him the result of the world war. And by the way, he also um, foresaw the Second World War in the 1930s. He was even able to draw a map of Germany chopped up after the war into the various zones. So, uh, and this is that, is, that, is that on record somewhere? This this map, or yeah. do you know? Yes, yes, it's it's been well, it's been um, you know affidavits have been sworn by the people to whom he was talking. Yes. Yeah. In fact, in fact, his father gave him a biff of the ear <laughs> before the First World War. He was this kid, not yet eight years old, talking about politics. His father was not a very uh, cultivated man. He gave Bruno a whack across the ear for talking such rubbish. I think in the, in the documentary they talked about him having taken bread out of the kitchen and dried it and... and um buried it in the forest to service supplies during the war? And yes. Yeah. Yes, he foresaw there would be hunger, as there was, of course. The, the British Navy was blockading Germany, and by the end of the war, the Germans were just about starving. Okay, uh, we jump ahead a lot. Um, Bruno was never able to complete his uh, education, Um his father wanted him to take on a some sort of manual trade. Bruno would have preferred something else, but anyway, he obeyed his father, and he trained to be a carpenter. But the system there was that you went uh, to a company as an apprentice, and after a certain length of time, you got your, your papers to say, okay, you're qualified. Before he could qualify, the company he was... Uh, working for went bust and so then he did all sorts of jobs he was a postman who worked on the city council digging ditches and so forth he wanted to get to know all levels of society uh, but he would never in his life have any you know, certificates any papers which in germany is very important as you might know <laughs> yeah. you know you have to show your papers and prove who you are Okay, so, um, right, he, as I said, he never got a recognised uh, profession. Okay, uh, he was very anti-Nazi, as you can imagine, but he kept pretty quiet about it. But there's a story I like. Um, in the 1930s, when the Nazis were already in power, and Bruno was working on the city council there, and he and his mates went for a drink in a pub, and... <laughs> The uh, owner of the pub was a, a keen Nazi and he had these Nazi marching songs going on on the radio, which was up on, on the wall. And Bruno's mates thought, oh, not this again. So Bruno said to his mates, look, don't worry. And suddenly the music stopped. <laughs> and the owner took down the radio and he fiddled around with it, did all sorts of things, couldn't get any sound out of it at all. Bruno and his mates had a drink and then they got up to go out and Bruno said, okay. And he, he did something and the radio started again. So, 
Yeah, okay. Uh, he didn't want to be at all in the Second World War. He knew what was coming. Uh, but in 1943, he was uh, drafted. When he was drafted, he said to the, uh, the officer to whom he had to present himself, I will not shoot at any person. If you give me a rifle, I'll just shoot up in the air. Now, he could have been court-martialed and executed just for that. But, okay, they put him in the army. He was more or less a sort of a... Uh, a medical person in the army. He was sent to the horrible Eastern Front against the, the Soviet army and there he was eventually captured, held in prison for a couple of years and in prison he did all sorts of good things for his own um, comrades who were also captured. You know, because the Germans had treated the Russians so badly the Russians were not particularly nice to the German prisoners of war either. And Bruno did lots of good things to ease the lot of his uh, comrades. And, and some of these comrades were later to be his main helpers when he became famous in Hereford. Mm. Okay. Um, I, gather, I gather the Russians also noticed um, that he wasn't a usual person. I, again, in the documentary, they make some point about some of the Russian officers... Um, showing him some respect because they noticed how he he uh, ha I guess what influence he was on the on the prisoners. That's true. Uh, in at the end of the war, most German prisoners were carted off to Siberia. For some reason, the Russians let Bruno go, and then suddenly they thought, "My God, he would be a good one to have," and they sort of went after him and tried to bring him back. But it got away from them. He went back to Danzig, but the Germans were being expelled. So he went on to West Germany. And he lived in the area where you grew up. Um, Gütersloh, is that in Nordrhein-Westfalen? Not yeah. Yeah, so he was there. And he made his headquarters in... Ah... Uh, I should know the name of the place. Anyway, it'll come back to me later. All right. He was quietly doing healings all of this time, but he didn't want it to be made public yet. What happened and forced him into, public, into the public eye was this. In Hereford, there was an engineer named... Uh, Hul oh, my God. Hulsman. Hulsman. Hulsman had a son, uh, Detlef, I think his name was, who was uh, suffering from muscular um, dystrophy, dyst dystrophy. Right. And he was only nine years old, but he was just sort of shrinking away. He, was, he had to spend the whole time in bed. He couldn't even lift his head. Oh. And so the, uh, the father had got all sorts of specialists to come and do what they could, but nothing could be done. And then somehow he heard about this fellow called Bruno Gröning, who had a reputation as a healer. So he begged Bruno to come. Bruno came to this house number seven in Wilhelmsplatz in Helford, and he just talked to the boy. 
And amazingly, the boy got out of bed and started walking around. He wasn't an Olympic athlete by any means, but he was walking. And the father was so taken aback by this that despite Bruno's wishes, the father got on the phone to all the journalists he could think of. Now, in those days, of course, journalists were the main uh, purveyors of news. And then, of course, they would contact radios and so forth. And in no time, the word got out that there was a miracle healer in Hereford. And people started flocking to this small town from all over Germany and even from overseas. Now, he, was, he achieved a, a number of apparently miraculous healings. I mean, how do blind people suddenly start seeing? How is it that he could say to people in wheelchairs, stand up, and they would get up? How could he make deaf people hear again? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, the documentary is, there are so many cases and, and so many still eyewitnesses presented that um, it's almost repetitive to watch because there's one story after another, yeah. but, it's, but it's also incredibly compelling because you just go, this, this must be, this, you know, you can see the people, you can hear their stories. And I, I was imagining life in Germany after the Second World War with the extensive amount of trauma and, and injured people and people in state of shock. And, um, and, You're right. and so one of, the, one of the things that I was wondering, and I was curious about your, your, your thoughts about this, is whether a lot of the healing had something to do with something that he was channeling or his, you know, his, his presence, his energy, his words that somehow alleviated yeah. people's um, embodied trauma or embodied shock because there was, so there's two stories in particular that stood out to me. There was a story of a, a woman who talked about uh, being in a bombing attack that lasted for 17 hours with just bombs dropping yeah. straight. And then when, after that, after that bombing attack, her arm one of her arms was paralyzed not from an injury it seems it was essentially and she actually talks about it as being just the the, sh the fright and the shock somehow had had that effect and there was another case described where they talk about two people coming to him and they were both blind and if i understood that right uh one person was healed but the other person, he's had actual nerve damage through gas, I think, in the First World War, and he couldn't heal yeah. him. But the other person, the blindness seemed to be, again, it seemed to be almost a, a trauma effect. So I was wondering about that, you know. I was wondering whether that was a big factor. Uh, yes. Um, in those days, Germany was, oh, it was a terrible place to be. Not only had the Germans lost the war and things that had been bombed to bits, not only had people lost arms and legs and uh, eyes and so forth, but there was also the the guilt feeling that so many of them had cooperated with the Nazis and they may not have known the full extent of the Nazi crimes, but when these crimes were made public, I think it must have caused a lot more trauma. And now Bruno's um, theory was this. Everything 
depends on God. Well, I mean, God is not just the force that created us. We depend on him or it or she, her, for every second of our lives. Now, is energy available to all of us? Potentially, we could all do what Bruno did. That's what he, he told us. You can do this too. But, first of all, you have to get back to an, a very simple, very open relationship with God. Now, Bruno was not a traditionally religious person. He was brought up a strict Catholic, but he sort of left that behind him. But he was probably the most religious person in the world, in a way, because, you know, for him, there was absolutely no question, does God exist? No. No question whatever. God is simply the, the force that runs everything. Now, he himself was, for whatever reason, the recipient of a huge amount of healing energy. They used to come into his body and then he could transmit that to other people. And he had this word, Heilstrom, healing energy. And um, so often he had to talk to a person and if that person then opened up to receive the Heilstrom, then healing could occur. However, there's one other thing which he often stressed sometimes the healing was instantaneous but often it took a bit of time now i'll give you an example he said for example let's say you've got um, migraine you've had migraine for years and it's a terrible way to be now if you have received the healing energy it may be that for a little while your migraine is worse than ever worse than ever but now what you have to do is you have to realize that this is not part of the illness this is part of the healing process hang on to that and say to yourself this is regulong regulong meaning you know normalization or regulation or purification this is regulong and after a while you will find that the pain goes away and never comes back again. And that also applies to all sorts of illnesses. Uh, I don't know if what I'm saying is very illuminating, but I hope it helps a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it certainly touches into his, um, I guess, his his idea, right? His his vision of, of what he was doing. And I, I, so I was curious, so he, because he does, he did talk a lot about God, but as you say, he wasn't, a Christian was he? He wasn't. Uh, you couldn't denominate him as a particular uh, religious affiliation, or. Well, when he was asked if he was a Christian, he would say, "Oh, yeah, I'm a Catholic Christian," because in Germany in those days, you were either a Catholic or a Lutheran, and that was it, or a you know, a Calvinist. Uh, but he didn't ever say a word about uh, Jesus or the Church or he didn't ever go to Mass. Um, he was a very religious person without a church. Yeah. And, um, and and so in that case, religious, I guess, really in the core sense of 
linking people back to divinity, linking people back to something greater that they're part of, right? Yep, that's right. And he also stressed, you have to get rid of everything negative within yourself. Get rid of negative thoughts, negative feelings. Stop uh, nattering about other people. Uh, distance yourself from everything that is negative. And this will open you up to receive the healing energy. Uh, what did he, I mean, the, the, the whole negative thing can have a bit of a moralistic say if you're if you're a religious person uh, in the in the in the sense of catholic for example then you might say sex is uh, negative or um you know alcohol is negative those kinds of things was was there an an element of that in his uh no not really uh, he didn't i can't remember that he ever said anything at all about sex uh, you know you have to be loyal to your wife or your husband that's part of being a decent person. Um, it's, it's cruel if you are unfaithful to your partner. So that's very negative. However, um, he, he smoked. He drank a lot of coffee. <laughs> he wasn't a conventional saint at all. Yeah. Uh, and he enjoyed jokes. Um, yes. Um, so a, a prude sort of plaster saint he certainly was not yeah so so then he was in Hereford he was healing people it became public news you know we can probably skip the process I, I know he was then from the documentary again which I really actually would encourage people to watch I was fascinated by it um, he was uh, banned from doing healing by the by the local authorities um, yeah now yes, he had a lot of uh, he the fact that he was this untrained, in, in quotation, untrained person, no diplomas, whatever, uh, healing people without any sort of a diagnosis, without any sort of touching or rubbing or whatever, just talking to them, and not charging money. My God. Now, you can understand that uh, a lot of doctors got very nervous. Uh, what the, what's the point of our studying if this carpenter fellow, whatever he is, can come along and just heal people that we can't heal? Now, the and Big farmer also was not very impressed by this healing because he never recommended any sort of medicine. On the other hand, he did say to people, look, if you trust your doctor, go to him. That trust that you give to the doctor will allow the doctor to help you. So he was certainly not against doctors as such. However, the doctors, as in general, were very much against him. And the doctors and some other forces put a lot of pressure on the city council of Hereford. And what the argument they used was this. Look, Hereford is a small town. It's full of these people all over the place. The traffic can't even get through. Ah, so on those grounds, the mayor of Hereford eventually banned Bruno. He wasn't allowed to, to practice, to do the healing. So, and that spread quickly to the rest of Nordrhein-Westfalen. So Bruno sort of wandered through Germany. Everywhere he went, people would flock to him. But one by one, all of the provinces banned him. 
uh, and uh, the journalists will tell us that up to a certain point, they were told, go and just report what's happening with this guy. But after that certain point, they were given instructions, report negatively. And even Der Spiegel, which, for which I have a lot of respect, you know, a magazine with a good reputation, even that magazine had horrible lying articles about Bruno, that he was, a, you know, a, a drinker and a, and a sex maniac who was taking advantage of people. And the, the fact was, he was always in trouble because he never had any money. He wouldn't accept money. Or, at the most, if people insisted he take money, he would accept it and then immediately give it away to some widow or widow or somebody else who needed more than he did. And that had consequences also for his married life. He had married a woman called um, Gertrude Kohn. She was, I think, of Jewish background. He had married her largely, I think, out of pity. I dare say he loved her too, but... Uh, but poor Gertrude, she did not understand what Bruno was about. She wanted to clutch him to herself. And so when Bruno would um, get a visitor in the middle of the night, Bruno would come and heal somebody, Gertrude would become very nasty about it. You should stay home. You should be my husband and father to my sons and so on. Okay, so Bruno... He was, in a way, a bit like St. Francis. He took very little care of himself, but he would do anything for anybody else. How, how okay, did he survive? Uh, how did he survive? So I know his marriage split up then, right? Because he, she basically said, you stay with me or you do your healing. And clearly that was much more important to him. But if he didn't take any money for something that surely became a full-time job, um, given the number of people that came to him, how, how did he survive? What did he make? How did he make a living? Or did well, people was, just feed him? He was dependent on charity. Yeah. yeah. People were only too happy to, to put him up and feed him and, and so on. And he liked his cup of coffee. <laughs> so oh, another uh, factor to do with his wife, this was a, something which hurt him so much he could hardly talk about it. They had two sons born with gaps between them. In both cases, the sons were psychically gifted people who seemed to have been born to help their father. But both of them got ill at about nine years of age and the mother refused to let Bruno heal them. She insisted on taking them to a hospital and they both died. At, at various um, different times. And this was very, very hurtful to Bruno. Uh, and he could hardly talk about it. But, um, yeah. Yeah, that would be so, very, very sad. So he was already separated at that stage? Well, he can't have been if he had the two sons. Um, um, well, after the war, he, he found his wife again, and they did live together in... Now, where was it? Dillenburg. Dillenburg, yeah. That's also in Westf uh, Westf Westfalen, uh, Nordrhein-Westfalen. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, they lived there for a time, but after a while, he simply couldn't. Uh, the relationship was so bad that he divorced her, and later he married a beautiful French woman who appreciated what he was, that she had to take a back position compared with the sick people he wanted to heal. She accepted that completely. Okay? Yeah. So that sounds like what he needed. But then, so then he, where, where I would like to, what I would like to hear a bit about is he, he ended up in Bavaria where he was quite welcome, but there was a, a study that was done. So he was invited by um, a university hospital or some kind of scientific hospital um, to heal people oh, okay. under controlled conditions. Bavaria, there was a, a professor, a professor Fisher at Heidelberg who was keen to study Bruno and to take advantage of him, I must say. And they had Bruno come to the hospital. He'd agreed to do some sort of tests there. And there were doctors sitting around in this room and the doctors picked out the most hopeless cases and brought them in uh, to see what Bruno could do. Now, I must say, uh, there were divisions among the doctors. Some of the doctors were very impressed by Bruno. Uh, and some wanted to uh, profit from him and others were very much against him. But this Professor Fisher uh, saw Bruno uh, do marvellous healings and then he wanted to take advantage of Bruno. He said, okay, tell you what, um, I'll give you a position here, but um, I want you to attribute one third of your healings to me and the other two thirds, they're, they're for you. But he also wanted Bruno to pay quite a lot of money to to have this position. And Bruno, <laughs> he had to live from whatever scraps not good people would give him. So Bruno couldn't accept that. Um, and eventually he, he got to Bavaria, where at the start he was accepted very favorably. Now there's a city called Rosenheim, a bit to the east of Munich. And near Rosenheim there was a stud farm called Traberhof. And there at Traberhof there was a huge field normally used for, for horses. And there was a house with a balcony that overlooked this huge field. The owner of the Traberhof said to Bruno, yes, come here. You can do your healings here. And up to 30,000 people a day came to this Traberhof. They absolutely filled this huge flat. And Bruno would be standing up on the balcony and saying things like, all right, you people who are sitting in the wheelchairs, get up now. And often there'd be a hesitation, they'd look at each other. Bruno would say, come on, up you get. And very often they did. And, you know, these absolutely inconceivable healings were taking place in the hundreds. And the place was also, somebody spoke of a sea of misery, you know, People with all sorts of complaints would be pushed on wheelchairs or on some sort of trolley and 
there were so many ill people there and so much good was being done. And he was also favoured at that point by Ludwig Erhardt, who was later to become a Chancellor of Germany. At that point he was, I think, the, the sort of Premier of Bavaria. But a lot of pressure was put on Erhardt and eventually he gave in as well. So eventually Bruno was forbidden to heal anywhere in Germany. Now, he was also put on trial a couple of times. And the accusation was absolutely incredible. The accusation was healing without a license. Now, in the time of the Nazis, you know, they were control freaks, they had brought in laws to, um, to make all natural healing illegal. They could control the doctors, the fellows with a diploma. They could control them much more easily than they could control natural healers. So they made it a crime to heal without a license. And that stupid law was still on the books in West Germany. And that law was used to put Bruno on trial a couple of times. This beautiful man whose motto was the meaning of my life is to help people was put on trial for the most stupid reasons. And, um, and another thing, he said on a couple of occasions, look, when they don't allow me to heal, this huge energy which builds up within me starts to burn me away. Now, none of us can understand this, but when eventually his second wife, um, who, uh, the French lady, took him to Paris because he was obviously ill, and they submitted him to a, an operation, the specialists who opened him up had one look and they were astonished that he could live at all because his lungs were to a great extent burnt away. So they just healed him up again, uh, sewed him up again, and he went back to Germany to make some last-minute arrangements. And then the wife, in desperation, could see he was dying, but she took him back to Paris, to the same hospital, but he just died there. Right. Do you know if he had any, did he have any, um, I don't know, did he have anything to say about that, about his death? Did he, you know, speak about that he was at peace with it or he wasn't or... Um... Oh, yes, yes. Uh on a very rare occasions, he would say, oh, this is terrible, this suffering. But he would soon come in and say, look, the most wonderful day of my life is when I go home. By which he meant, you know, when he dies and goes home. Yeah. Uh, so, and he also promised, he said, look, I will die. My body will go to the earth, but I will not be dead. I'll be able to help you even more than I have while I've been alive on this earth. So the, the guy is still around and these healings are being reported from all around the world now. Yeah, and I'm curious to get to that as well. I'd like to know how his legacy kind of continued. But there was a couple of things I wanted to um, just check with you. One is, uh, this is, I don't know if you have an answer to this, but I noticed in the video there was a few images of him where he seemed to have these huge bulging um, kind uh, yeah. of things around his neck. Um, do, yeah. you know, do you know what the significance of that is? Yes, yes. Uh, a lot of people thought he had a goiter. He had a big sort of 
a balloon at the neck. Uh, he explained that to people. He said, when that balloon is up, that's when I'm full of energy that I can unload. When I'm sort of flat, the balloon goes down again. So it, it might have been a bit off-putting to some people, but for people who knew him, that bulge at the neck was something positive. Right, so it was somehow related to this, to the to the higher storm energy that was um, coming That's into it, him. Yeah. yeah, and and did he uh, ever talk about? So he talked about God, right? And he talked about being essentially a. Well, did he talk about himself as being like a channel of of uh, the energy of God? Yes. Or? yes. He. Uh, so many people came to thank him after being healed. He said, look, don't thank me. I'm just a little instrument of God. Thank God. God's done the healing. So, yes, um, he was very, very modest. Uh, he would say, he also said a number of times, every person is potentially able to do what I'm doing. But one of the differences between me and other people is that I have remained a child. What? He said, I have remained natural. I've been fortunate enough. You know how little children often seem to be in touch with uh, other realities and they sort of lose it later? Yeah. He, he says, I have stayed a child in immediate contact with God all my life. And that is why I've, I've been granted this role of helping people. But yeah, it's I'm interesting. Not but I'm not the one doing it. Yeah, I'm just the channel. Yeah. Um, so, for example, when you mentioned children, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of how a lot of there's, there's some very interesting studies in past life memories among children, and that there seems to be a certain window up to about the age of nine or ten or so that children are more likely to recall um their past lives and then gradually those memories even if they've been very vivid they gradually kind of fade away and then they don't really talk about it anymore did did bruno talk about can that I at all recall personally i don't know. possibly i can't recall having read about it but he, he did speak of children as being you know open to god more than adults because that they get it socialized out of them as I grow older. Kim, I can recall when I was a kid of about, I don't know, four, three, I really can't recall. And one day, I was by myself, one day I said to myself, this is not my real place. I, I don't know where I've come from, but this is not the place where I should be. Now, <laughs> it, it may be that I had some sort of inkling of where I'd come from. Yeah. But I did remember feeling that I don't belong here. It's a very common feeling. I think a lot of us have that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've come to the wrong place. <laughs> take me back. Yeah. Like Bruno was saying, I want to go home. Yeah. yeah. Take me out of this place. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he didn't talk about past lives. He did, did he talk about spirits? Did he talk about, um, you know, connecting with, with non-physical people? Not that I'm aware of, Kim. Mm. Um, 
he may well have done in private uh, because th there are times little private groups of very devoted followers and he probably revealed a lot more to them than he would in to the general public because at that time in Germany speaking of you know contact with spirits and past lives and so forth would have been very odd in public he was because, pretty odd though I mean everything about him was pretty odd <laughs> <laughs> yes it was yeah um yeah, so he, uh, you know, I guess my, certainly my, my feeling is from, my, 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 not my feeling, my impression from all the testimonials and from all the affidavits and so many records from people that knew him that his healings were remarkable and are very difficult to, to explain away as placebos or as some kind of con or as anything like that, right? He was clearly having a huge impact how have you i mean i don't know if you've looked into this but i i was thinking um you know he's he's one of there's kind of uh, a series of similar things so for example lourdes in the south of france where people go on pilgrimages and report lots of healings um there's just a, a place you know that seems to have that effect um there was a i discovered this purely by accident when i was in in lisbon many years ago and uh, I came across this fountain at which there had been left hundreds and hundreds of um, notes of appreciation for a medical doctor that died maybe 100 years ago, but who people are attributing many, many healings to today. So I guess I was thinking Bruno is kind of one of a, you know, he, he's, he's, he's sort of one manifestation of what seems to be a recurring um phenomena in different parts of the world of these individuals or places in the case of Lourdes, um which is probably if, also linked you, to people if you go back to medieval churches you often find their tokens of thanks for healings obtained um you know they, they attribute it to the virgin mary or to some saint or other um yes uh th these things happen uh, Bruno says um, there are many things that cannot be explained but nothing that cannot happen um, and he had a saying which sounds ridiculous on the face of it nothing is incurable I mean if I had if I were talking to some person in the terminal stages of cancer and I said nothing is incurable it would probably seem very um, callous or even. But Bruno said, no, whatever you may feel, nothing is incurable. Now, I think that can be explained by the findings of quantum physics. The quantum physicists tell us that everything is energy. Even matter is just a particular constellation of energy. So that thoughts are a form of energy which can act on other forms of energy like matter. Thoughts can change matter. And in a case of a person like Bruno, his thoughts were you know, backed up by this huge amount of healing energy. And so 
he could somehow get into the, let's say, a blind person whose eyes don't have the right constellation at this moment, but the healing energy can fix up those eyes so the person can see. Now, that's my own primitive way of trying to understand it. I hope it makes some sense. Mm. Well, it's a, it's a theory, right? We're trying to make sense of something that appears to be happening, so we can see it's happening. There's evidence for it to be happening, and we don't fully understand how. Um, so I understand what you're saying is, is an attempt, you know, trying to, to find an explanation for this. For me, the fact that we can't understand it is even exhilarating. There is so much we don't know. And our universe is so marvellous, so much more than what we see in our everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. So um, then I guess I'm curious now, then he died. He, uh, what, how did his legacy then emerge? There's this circle of friends of Bruno Groening. Okay. Um, how, how did that end? And how do people work with his energy or his presence now? Okay. There had been several Bruno Groening groups while he was still alive. Most of them, for reasons which I can't understand now, petered out. Until the 1970s, now he died in 59, so it was a good decade later, a lady called Greta Häusler, an Austrian lady, who had been healed of three life-threatening complaints by Bruno, who sort of took to the road and she went and she gave talks here and there and everywhere and was able to dig up people who had been healed by Bruno to help her and she gradually built up the group again and called it the Finders Christ, the Circle of Friends of Bruno Gurney and um, uh, it went from there. She um, well, she was very, very influential. She travelled a lot of countries. Uh, she died in 2007 and her son, Dieter Häusler, is more or less the head of the organisation. Although that doesn't mean much. He just, he's, let's say, the main spokesman. Um, and how can I put it? Yeah, one way of spreading it is this. Every year, a number of doctors, most often they're Germans, will travel to other countries to present Bruno's ideas. And uh, often there are a couple of people on the ground already who will help. And the expenses, uh, the doctors are not paid for their services, but their flight and their accommodation is all paid for. Uh, That's another thing about the organisation. Money. Bruno uh, refused to accept money, even though he was sometimes accused of being a glutton and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so, Greater Hoistler was very, very careful about money within the circle of friends. There is no fee for joining, and once you join, you get literature from Germany in your language. Uh, 
so many times a year. And these doctors, they travel, and psychiatrists travel. And why are they and doctors? This is quite an interesting switch that they are doctors because it was the doctors that were not entirely but largely um, kind of fighting him. Yeah. Why is it now doctors well, I, that are going representing him? Well, I think the doctors are most plausible now because, you know, not all doctors are the same. And yeah. there, there are still some doctors who just poo-poo these ideas altogether. Of course. People who don't really know all that much. But the, the doctors who present Bruno's ideas are pretty, um, pretty plausible because there's no gain for them professionally from talking about, you know, being able to heal yourself and not paying any money and so forth. However, within the organization, I'll just finish this idea about the money. Uh, no, no, no one's paid. Uh, a lot of people do work. They make films. They make cassettes and, and, and they make books and so on. And translate, I've translated for years. No one's paid. However, it all depends on donations so that when we have our get-togethers every third week, uh, we usually have a, a, a box there into which people can put donations. And that's the only way the organization can keep going. But, oh yes, and, and some people leave money in their will. Uh, so money is quite necessary for the organization itself. But as I said, there is no membership fee. There's no recognizable membership at all. There's no certificate of membership. It's just all very voluntary. Yeah. Well, I guess that keeps it certainly in the spirit of of, of Bruno, it seems, because that was a big thing for him, right, as you said, not to take any money. And yeah. but, but what do you do? I mean, uh, from what I've seen, his teachings were minimal, right? He didn't really... Um, tell people there was no complicated kind of guidance around doing, you know, doing this kind of meditation, this sort of visualization, um, you know, what um, it, it all seemed to be centered very much around his presence and him being there and touching people and talking to people. So in his absence, what is it that is presented? How do people practically experience this storm? Yes, this healing energy? Right, it's in theory, it's terribly, it's terribly simple. Not so easy in practice. But what you do is, you get yourself very relaxed, and you know, sitting up straight, feet flat on the floor. Put your hands on your laps with your palms uppermost, and just open yourself up. Dismiss anything negative from your mind. Relax as much as you can, and let it happen. Don't demand it, but ask for it, and that's basically what you can do. And, and what are you what are, what are you asking for? Well, healing or, or whatever. It, it's it's not only for healing. Uh, you can ask for help in financial things, in education. Uh, you can ask for help for your pets or your your plants. Uh, whatever you want to ask for, you can. Yeah. I mean, the issue of setting aside any negative thoughts can be a real challenge for people, right? Like if you're in the middle of a hard situation or you're struggling with something, which is usually when people most want healing, 
the mind doesn't necessarily just shut itself off uh, on command. True enough. And so many accounts of healings are written by people who for years had a, a, gr a grudge against their parents or their rallies or, or somebody else and they couldn't let go of this hatred or whatever it might be. It wasn't until they realized how negative that is and they gave it up, that's when they got healed. Yeah, so there was I mean, there are so many, so many accounts where people tell you their story. So that, that moment of self-realization really shifting those negative thought forms is what generates the healing then. Yeah. Opens you up to, to, to a more positive, more uplifting healing energy. Yeah. That's yeah. it. And so theory, very simple. Did, did Bruno write any books? Did he produce any books? No. Uh, however, he gave lots of lectures and they have been recorded and uh, they're available in written form. His lectures are very, very, how can I put it, <laughs> spontaneous. They're not works of art, literally, uh, as literature. Uh, it, it, it jumps around from subject to subject and um, so on. But if you distill the essence of his talks, they are quite powerful. Mm. And, yeah, I'm just curious, you know, what... what I, I'm, I'm guessing there must have been... Uh, you've alluded to it, right? There must have been some really powerful healings or transformations that have happened since his death for his, his, because it's such a minimalist kind of uh, structure, right? It's, it's a, a, a minimalist product, if you want to call it that. You know, there's this man, we know this man channeled some kind of healing energy. And now around this, there sprung up these different groups of people all over the world. Um, so what, you know, what maintains them? There must be these different stories where people have find a lot of support that is what encourages that. Maybe in your own yeah, life, like well, what, what is it for you? What, what was it that made you take over the role here and, and what sort of things have you experienced here in Adelaide with the group? What keeps me going is the constant reports of healings. And we had one, we've had one here, we've had a couple. I'll just give you one example. Uh, one of our chaps called Tony, uh, he was for years constantly tired. He had, what do they call it? Um, it's some sort of fatigue. Chronic fatigue yeah. syndrome? I forget the scientific name, but yeah. it was so bad that even though he was only in his early 50s, I think, he could no longer work. Constantly so tired, he could hardly go for a walk. And um, he heard about the Bruno group and he and his wife came along and he didn't know what to think of it for a start, but he decided to stick with it and see what, what would happen. And sometime later, he suddenly got terrible earaches, which had nothing to do with his normal fatigue. And... 
then he caught on to the idea this could be the regelung, the mm-hmm. you know the purification process, the alignment. Yeah. Yeah. So he held on to that idea, and gradually the earache went away, and suddenly he found himself full of energy, and he's been that way ever since. Right. And so, actually, I was going to ask you there something in the in the documentary. They talk about um, Bruno's idea of uh, us having poisoned blood, so that his healing process somehow purifies the blood. Is that a sound Sorry, a bit like? I, I, didn't, I, I didn't catch the main words. There's something about healing. Oh, that 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 uh, that Bruno had some kind of notion about us having poisoned blood that when we're when we're ill there's illness in the blood or something that he heals or purifies the blood yeah <laughs> yes he often gave people a bit of water to drink and said this will heal your blood now <laughs> talk like that to an ordinary doctor and they think you're absolutely crazy the point is he healed people or yeah. well, people healed themselves, which is the way you want to put it. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. He, he was. That was one of his um, so-called <laughs> therapies, giving people a bit of water to drink. <laughs> okay. Well, going back to Tony then, who who got healed from his his chronic fatigue syndrome or whatever it was, the, the, the fatigue. Case. Um. So he came to your group. What did you do? Do you do you have somebody? in your group, I suppose, that takes on a kind of the role of Bruno and speaks to people and says, you know, you're healed now? Or is it just a group thing? You do a kind of group meditation, like you described, where you sit and open up to something. How do you, you know, how does the healing enter someone who comes into your group? Okay. Uh, Well, I'll give you a very short rundown of what we do. We get together uh, any discussion about whatever and then there's some very relaxing music there's a whole lot of music also um, that's generated by the uh, circle of friends there are a couple of brothers in germany who are very very good composers anyway and then there's a poem and then um, i in in this case in adelaide i'm the, uh, the group leader so i read out a short passage taken directly from Bruno and then I give a sort of a I don't know what you call it, a sermon or a talk I, I try to concentrate their thoughts on a particular aspect of the whole thing and then we have three healing reports and there are so many of them and you've got a, a huge number to pick from we read three healing reports I so, get them to pass the text around the group. So, so what's a healing? So, healing report is somebody from somewhere in the world uh, sharing, yep. Yep. sharing how they okay. got healed. Yeah. Yes. There's a, there's a sort of a format. Uh, the problem, how I got in touch with the ideas, and the healing, and um, they can be in Australia as well. We've had some in Australia at times, and. Uh, those reports are read, and then and and I guess so. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I guess those reports kind of would put people in the predisposed people to be open, right, to the possibility. That's right. Even when we're reading these reports, we sit there, and as we say, we get the Heilstrom moving. We sit there, 
and we, you know, we have the the pose, I guess, of the real meditation to allow the hydrogen to start flowing already. And then after those three reports, we have our own meditation. And um, and then after that, we <laughs> we used to have a book table when we used to meet physically. And on the book table, there are all sorts of cassettes and books and um, calendars and other things to do with, with um, Bruno's ideas. And then we go home. So the healings, they, they crop up. You never know when they're going to come, but they are coming all the time. Right. And there's no kind of, um, you know, like say, say in the spiritualist church, people might pray for, you know, the intervention of, um, of spirits, you know, extra physical people to, to support people in their healing. There's nothing like that. You really just, it's really just about opening to an impersonal oh. healing energy. Yeah. Is that right? Well, there's another thing called the healing chain. Uh, every day I get two or three um, emails. I'm in the chain and we concentrate on asking for healing for a particular person named in the email. Uh, we use just initials. We, we don't know the person's name. And we hope that through that means... You know, when there are a few hundred people concentrating on healing a particular person, it uh, can be quite effective. Yeah. So that's that's done at home, apart from the yeah. meetings. I mean, apart from that, there are, there have been up till now, very big conferences uh, in various parts of the world, and the biggest ones actually take place in Austria and Germany. They have beautiful alpine country there and hundreds and hundreds of people turn up and there's always reports of healings there as well. Mm. Okay, so, and so with the healing chain, I, it kind of sounds a bit like you're all, you know, becoming like you described, Bruno describes himself as a small link in the, you know, like, I guess in the process of healing from God and in the healing chain, you're all small links, right? You're creating that, that mm. network to tap yep. into the healing energy and, and direct it towards people. And he would say also, he did say, you know, there have always been people like this who could do healings right through history. Unfortunately, in the modern world, we've largely um, changed our way of thinking. We have lost the, the natural childlike contact with God. And this is one of the reasons why the world is such a bad way. I think it's been a bad way for a long time. You know, if you think about um, the medieval period or... Uh, it's always been a minority of people that have been in in a Bruno sort of category. Oh, yes, for sure. But they have been around. Yeah. And in Brazil, I experienced the fact that there, there are people right now doing similar things yeah. I was healed simply by meditation in about four or five minutes it was remarkable yeah I mean here in Australia we've got the you know traditional healers Aboriginal healers they do very similar work hands-on 
kind yep. of very low key work that seems to have a lot of effect, uh, really helped yep. a lot of people. Yes, and you spoke of Lourdes in France and mm. and other places like that. I don't know about the Muslim world, but I suppose there are similar places there too. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. 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 All right. So I guess um, you know, if people are listening, if they're interested, uh, there there seems to be a circle of friends of Bruno Göring, as you said, all over the world. You can Google it yep. easily enough, right? And uh, and anyone who's interested wants to know more can can contact me. Any people in Adelaide? Uh, can I give you a phone number? Um, I'll put your email address maybe at, with the notes. There, yeah, there'll be notes with the, um, sure. with the with the episode and also the website for the Bruno Goering group. Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. I really hope you got some value out of today's episode. If you did, why not leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it. The tune seeing us out is another one from Axel Teslev. This one is called Akasha. You can find more information about today's guest on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com, including any links to their work and their contact details. On my website, you'll also find my blog and information and reviews about my book, Multidimensional Evolution which you can purchase in any good bookstore if you want to show your love for this show and get practical info for your own exploration of consciousness. Finally, please get in touch, whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics. I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I am sending you my very best energies.